Would you open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10? Get my cord figured out. Oh yeah, kids, uh, children ages three through first grade, you guys are welcome to participate in children's church. Thanks for that kind prompt. All right, while well, we have the pitter-patter of little feet, uh, let me just give you a heads up. If you're just joining us, uh, we're in the book of Hebrews and we're doing this uh, sort of section within the book of Hebrews. The authors spent about the past three chapters talking about Jesus as uh, the greater sacrifice. His, his blood is greater than any of the other sacrifice. He's the greater priest. You know, he, he's the one who can stand perfect in God's presence. Uh, he's even the greater sanctuary. He himself, his body is the place where we meet you know, with God physically, right? Um, to keep all those themes in mind as we look at a transitional place in the book of Hebrews, because now for the rest of the book, uh, we're, we're sort of like, okay, in light of all of these things, now, how, how do we live our lives? What does discipleship look like in light of how great Jesus is? So let's stand in honor of God's Word. I'm going to read verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us in mercy a clear picture of who Jesus is. And I pray that as we understand him better and better and more and more, that our lives would be changed to conform more to his. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. What's the, um, what's the most prestigious, uh, maybe swankiest, most, most elite place that you have ever uh, been invited into or, or had access to? Have you ever been on the other side of the velvet rope? Uh, have you ever had the VIP pass, you know, to, to get access to the place where only important people, you know, the, the celebrities get to go, where only the, you know, the, the, the important people get to hang out, where only those with a lot of money, you know, get, get to go or whatever. Have you ever been, ever been in one of those places backstage to your favorite artist? Have you ever been invited to a celebrity's house? Have you ever been someplace that's just, you know, like, wow, I can't believe I'm here? I haven't. <laughs> I've got nothing. <laughs> I wish I could say, oh, let me tell you about the time, you know, and then fill in the mic. I have been, um, I, I do have this, I have been into, um, it, 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 it's, they're really careful who they let in because 
Uh, well, frankly, uh, they don't let anybody out. <laughs> and I'm talking about maximum security pre prison, right? Um, one of our members, one of our brothers in Christ, uh, who's a member here, uh, John Miller, uh, you, you know, years ago, did something terrible, uh, truly awful. Uh, he's spending 30 years in jail. He's at the Greenville uh, Correctional Center right now. Uh, he was in maximum security. I went to visit him uh, one time at uh, River North Correctional Center, and it was insane how much security you had to go through in order to get inside. Um, they don't want to let just anybody inside. They don't want to let, you know, undesirables inside because they're trying to keep the undesirables, you know, in there, and they don't want anything getting in that can help them get out, right? So there's sort of that dynamic going on. But let's Let's stay focused on like positive places that we want to go, positive places we want access to, even sort of the elite access that you might have if, for instance, you were uh, an employee or, as they say, a cast member at Disney. Uh, my son Michael spent a semester working in the Magic Kingdom. Uh, he, did a, he took a, a semester off from college, did the Disney College program, and essentially was an intern uh, where he was a skipper on the Jungle Boat Cruise. You, you know that ride um, where you, you ride around in the safari and the skipper tells really corny jokes, pilots the boat, and you get to see the backside of water. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, Michael got to do that, and, and in his time at the Magic Kingdom, as a two, as just, you know, a normal person. Uh, these are the doors that are marked cast members only. Uh, there are backstage places. There are tunnels under Magic Kingdom, like these special access places that you can't go to unless you're a cast member or, as it happens, or if you're a VIP, or if you... Not only, you know, you got to spend tons and tons of money to, to go to the park, you know, just to get into the Magic Kingdom. You, you shell out all this money to, to just go ride the rides. But if you and your party of up to 10 guests, you and, you know, nine of your closest family or friends desire, you too can spend up to $900 an hour <laughs> to get a private you know, a uh, tour guide who will take you around the Magic Kingdom and give you access uh, to all of those backstage places through the tunnels. You can go to the front of the line on the rides. You can sit in the front row of the, some of the shows and so on. It's a seven-hour minimum reservation at $900 an hour. And uh, people say it's worth it. I don't know. Um, but yeah, you too, with enough money and enough, you know, whatever... Uh, you, you, you can go be a VIP at the Magic Kingdom. Oh, by the way, that doesn't include your tip. You're supposed to tip the guy after shelling out you know, thousands and thousands of dollars for, for your VIP tour. Um, and, and that brings us to this whole idea here in, in Hebrews that there's, a, there's sort of this backstage entrance into God's presence. Um, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us 
through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. There's this curtain that divides the holy place and the most holy place. And what Hebrews is telling us is that, yes, you can go on through the veil. You can pass through that. And back in Jesus' day, the temple had this wall around it, and the wall enclosed all of the precincts of the temple and closed it off from the rest of the world. So, so that wall divides this holy space from the rest of, of creation, the rest of the world that's uh, affected by sin, affected by the curse or whatever. And, and this, this wall uh, that, that you can go through the first gate would, would take you into the court of the Gentiles. So any person who wants to can go through that gate into this holy space called the court of the Gentiles. And then there's another uh, space that you can go into, another gate, and that will take you into the court of women. And that's only for the Hebrew, for Israelite uh, men and women to go into that space. If you're not a non-Jewish person, you have to stay in the court of the Gentiles because you're not allowed into this, this more separate holier space for, for, for God's people according to Abraham, right? By blood. And, and then there's another gate. Uh, so the women have to stay behind because then there's the court of Israel. And that's where the men can go uh, who, are, who are Jewish and uh, who are descended from Abraham and they can hang out there. Uh, and then there's another gate. And through that gate, is the court of the priests. And that's only for the tribe of Levi. That's only for the priests to be able to, to have access to. It's even holier than the court of Israel, which is holier than the women's court, which is holier than the Gentiles' court, and certainly holier than the world. And if you're a priest, you can have access there, and then you get to the temple proper. And the priest who's on duty, you know, you think Zechariah, in Luke's gospel, you know, if you're on duty, then you can go into the temple itself, into the holy place, where there's the table. You can bring there's the menorah, there's the altar of incense, and you can bring the blood, you can bring the incense, you can bring the sacrifices for that day if you're the priest on duty, into the holy place. And in the holy place, you would also see a curtain. And the curtain that's mentioned here in verse 20 is what separates the holy place from the most holy place. And the most holy place is the epicenter of God's presence on earth, symbolized by the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant are two cherubim, these warrior beings, these angelic beings that are protecting God's footstool, his, the footstool of his throne. And only one person can enter into the most holy place, the high priest, and only once a year, and he better bring blood or his blood will be shed. Actually, there's a legend that they used to tie a rope around this guy's ankle in case he ever went into the most holy place improperly and would be struck down and they could drag his body out because he brought what is unholy into the most holy presence of God. 
So that's the, the background that we need to understand about how just radical verses 19 and 20 are. How, how beyond any uh, original audience who, who in the first century, if they're reading and receiving the book of Hebrews and they're being told, hey, let's with confidence go into that space that is, for history, as, as, much, as long as they've known, has been reserved for one person one time a year. They're going, what? Yeah. That's sort of sidebar to the description Mark and Luke all include in their, in their accounts of the crucifixion that when Jesus died, it says that, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split, and there's even accounts of resurrections and so on. Um, but this is remarkable because what we're told is that the, the, the curtain temple, um, so the temple curtain that was really thick and huge and, and walled off, right? That holy space from the most holy space, it was, it was ripped entirely. So that, that space was no longer divided, but was included. Uh, and that we're earlier told in chapter 4 of Hebrews that Jesus is our sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. That's where he exists. That's where his presence is having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus, our high priest, has gone before us as a forerunner into the most holy place, and now we get to join him beyond the veil. This is, this is mind-blowing. This is a radical shift for people who have grown up with this whole notion of the temple and what it means to be in God's presence. And now Jesus is saying, come on, come with me. We get a VIP pass, right? He gives it to us. And, 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 and so, you know, these are gimmicky, I know, and well done for those of you who stuck one on. Uh, but, but how do we tend to think of VIP passes, right? We, we, we know what that acronym stands for. It's a very important person. So, the VIPs get to be in the skyboxes, right? The very important people get to go backstage. Uh, the, the ones with the money, the ones with the clout, the special access. But, but that's not how the VIP pass works in God's kingdom. It, it's how it works in the magic kingdom. But it's not how it works in God's kingdom. It's not for the very important people at all. It's for anyone. Um, I, 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 bear with me. I'm going to keep running with the whole VIP thing. It's not just for very important people, and it's not for how we tend to think of, of God's kingdom. It's not, nor is it for very improved people. Like that, isn't that how the world tends to think of heaven and God's access, and who can, who can be with God? Who gets to go to heaven when they die? Well, it's for good people. People who, who have general, generally improved themselves, people who, who keep the rules, people who don't rock the boat, people who aren't making something of themselves, people who 
are, are, are good, people who are successful, people who are, are nice, right? And we sort of think they're the ones who can go beyond the veil. They can go into God's presence. The bad people, not so much. I don't know, maybe. We don't really know. We're just sort of agnostic about that. But that's not what it means to be, to be a VIP in God's kingdom either. In, in God's kingdom, and I know it's hokey, but just hear me out. In God's kingdom, to, to be a VIP means that you are a very imputed person. <laughs> and so those of you who know what that word means, you're going, huh, you got us. Yeah, no, yeah. Some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about, Essen. What, what does imputed mean? All right, so imputed means um, that when you look at Jesus, when you understand what he did for us on the cross, it means that two very important transactions took place. And the theologians call this the double imputation. It means that Jesus took our sins on himself. His sin, our sin was transferred to him so that, so that when he died on the cross, God regarded him as a sinner, dying a sinner's death. And, and he paid that price entirely. That's why he died, because the wages of sin is death. And because he rose, we know that he paid that penalty entirely. And there's nothing left to pay and, and that brings us to the second part of the double imputation, which is that Jesus' goodness gets transferred to us. All of his beauty, all of his perfection, all of his love, all of his kindness, all of his gentleness, all of his patience, all of, all of his goodness and purity and holiness is transferred to us imputed us. And I know it's a church word, and we don't really you know, use that word very often, but we use a derivative of it, right? We talk about people's reputation. It's the same Latin root, meaning that when, you when somebody has a reputation, you know, the prefix re, you do it again and again and again, you, you, this person gets thought of this way so often that that just becomes their identity. That's how we regard them. That's how we think of them, either for good or for ill. And, and, and that's what Jesus' cross has done for us. Is it's given us a reputation in heaven. As, as those who are clothed in Christ, we have his righteousness over us. We have his reputation if we're united to him by faith. Anyone can have this. In God's kingdom, anybody can have that. You're an important person. It doesn't depend are you an imputed person? Do you have the reputation of Jesus stuck on you? Anybody can have it. It's yours by faith. Jesus offers it to the whole world if they come. Come, come to me, he says, and get my righteousness applied to you. Come to me. I will take your sin and its punishment on myself. That's the gospel. Anybody can have it. you have to have it in order to get into his kingdom. You have to have it. 
There's no other righteousness. There's no other holiness. There's no other access into God's presence than what Jesus has provided for us. Do you have it? Do you, it's as real as this stupid sticker is. It is real. Do you have it? If you don't have it, you can have it today. You can have it right now, sitting right where you are, listening to my voice. You can have it. Trust that Jesus did it for you. Be united to him. Find your righteousness in him. Trust he took our sin penalty away. And like that, you're a new creation. Right now, do you have his righteousness? Has he taken your sin? Are you a very imputed person? Right? Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, for us, right? He made him, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's how the gospel works. It's by faith in him, trusting in him receiving from him this VIP pass. You have to have it if you're going to be in his kingdom. Now, the reason why this is so remarkable, what what the author of Hebrews is telling us, is because over and over again, the Bible has been telling us in his holiness and us in our sinfulness. So, like, for instance, when that curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, when it was when the tabernacle was being constructed and Moses received the blueprints based on the heavenly reality, the heavenly sanctuary, uh, he was told in Exodus 34, you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen, and it shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked or woven into it, and the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. Does that make sense, right? So there's this curtain that's supposed to separate the holy place and the most holy place. What color is the curtain? Sort of blue, red, scarlet, sort of purple overall. What's, what are the images woven into it? A couple of cherubim. Just like over top of the ark. Why? Why, why, why of all things, of all things, would God say, I want you to weave into the very fabric of this, this, this separation. I want you to weave into the fabric of that curtain the images of the cherubim. It's not an accident. Because when our first parents fell, when they chose self instead of God, when they, when they, when they chose sin instead of holiness, they were expelled from God's presence. They were no longer holy. If they had stayed in God's presence, they would have been consumed because they had sinned. It was a mercy that he cast them out, and it was a mercy that that was a temporary measure. He knew, God knew what he was doing. He was going to provide a second Adam who would be holy, who would stand the test, and who would give himself as a sacrifice for sin who would give us his righteousness so that we might come back in. You know, when, when Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, do you know what happened? God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way, saying, stay away for now. Stay away. 
until the second Adam comes. Stay away until your sins are forgiven and you are given Christ's righteousness. And so that's why this, you, you, you kind of get this, what, what may at times, I get it, like it may feel like it's contradictory or, or, or counterintuitive or, or a mixed message that the Bible can simultaneously say, stay away from God's holiness if we're in our sins, and at the same time, telling us, draw near, right? So James 4 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And Luke 15 tells us about how Jesus, how the tax collectors and sinners are all drawing near to him. And that's why here in Hebrews 10, we're told, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Like this confidence. It's remarkable because for so long we've been, Bible-believing people have been accustomed to thinking of God's presence as something to that has to be mediated. We can't draw near. The more regulations to go instead of us. And, and then the closer you get to God's presence, it's more dangerous and you know, more regulations and sacrifices and all that stuff. And here, it's saying, draw near with confidence, with boldness. Paul says in Ephesians 3 that the gospel is, is, is a reality according to the eternal purpose that God has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So do you see how Jesus makes all the difference? His blood makes all the difference. His body makes all the difference. Hey, because we knew in our sin we, cannot, we, we can't coexist with holiness because of the, the work that Jesus has done to forgive our sins and to give us his righteousness. He makes us holy. And now we coexist with the Holy One. This is the, this is the language of verse 22. Let us draw near with this true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with, with pure water. Uh, obvious allusions to, to baptism, right? Hearts sprinkled clean, bodies washed with, with pure water. Baptism uh, is what depicts us belonging to God, being washed, being set apart, sprinkled, sanctified is, is another way to describe it. And, and that's what we do when we put the sign of God's covenant on men and on women, on young and on old. It's God's way of saying, you belong to me now. Um, you know, I, I, I like to use the illustration of the rancher who will put that tag in, in the cow's ear saying, that cow belongs to me. You know, back in the day, they used to brand the cow. I guess it's more humane to do an earring now. But, but isn't that what God does through baptism? The good shepherd says, these are my sheep. And they're set apart. And they have his sign of ownership, of belonging, of being holy, of being saints, of, of, of being you know, a part of, of his kingdom. Um, and that's really what baptism is depicting as we belong to God. As we're, uh, the, the, there's two ways to describe sanctification. Uh, there's positional sanctification where we are regarded as holy because we become God's possession. Things that belong to God are set apart. 
Things that belong to God are holy. And then progressively, once we're made holy positionally, we grow in our sanctification and progressively become more like how God with Christ's reputation through faith in him instantly in the gospel. So there's, there's sort of two senses that we're talking about sanctification and both are represented here. Uh, there's the positional sanctification where God says, you're clean, you're sprinkled, you belong to me, I've put my name on you. And that's a real picture of what's going on. That's why we get to enter the holy places. There's nothing off limits in God's kingdom. There's nothing off limits to his holy people in his holy presence. Uh, I think if you're one of those people who has had that backstage access, if you've been to the skybox, if you've been to dinner, you know, at that celebrity's house or that politician's house or whatever, then you probably understand a little bit of the, you know, meekness or, or, or humility of kind of going into a space that feels separate from you, that maybe I don't really feel like I belong here, but I'm still a guest and it's still cool, but I'm going to sit on the edge of the seat instead of like reclining, right? And I'm going to just not take seconds because that would feel a little bit inappropriate. Um, I'll just eat my plate, right? So you, you can imagine that feeling. That's not going to be how we experience God's kingdom at all. Because we're, we're his kids. We're his children. We, we are holy. We belong to that holy space. Do you, you know, if you ever get invited to the Oval Office, you're going you're gonna to sit a little differently than the child of the president who gets to come into the Oval Office and sit on his parents' lap. It's going to feel different, right? Holy people, going saints, spaces. You feel completely at home. You're, you're like part of the furniture even. And, and, <laughs> and frankly, that's really how the, how the gospel describes us in 2 Peter 2. Um, Peter says, as you come to him, as you come to Jesus, as you draw near to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. We become the sanctuary. We become the temple. We are living stones. We belong there. And then you get to Revelation 3, and it gets even a little kind of weirder by way of analogy. Not just living stones, but the Spirit of Jesus tells the church, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God. How's that for a promise? Is that a promise or is it ominous? <laughs> You'll never leave. <laughs> You'll never go out of the temple. You're going to be this, this pillar in the temple. And a, who, who would want to leave? This is our hope. To be in God's presence is our hope. To be in the presence of what's beautiful and blissful is our hope. To, to be cast out of God's presence is our curse. 
get to be a, temp, a, a pillar. <laughs> you get to be a brick. <laughs> We're part of the furniture. Holy people are a part of the holy place. And so that's why we have confidence to enter in with boldness beyond the veil because we belong. Not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done. So, so let us hold fast this confession. Let us hold fast this conviction. This We're forgiven. We're pure. We're, we have the reputation of Jesus imputed to us. And we want to hold fast this confession without wavering for he who promised is faithful. I want you to look at verse 23. And I want you to ask yourself, let me ask you, when do we need to hear this kind of encouragement to hold fast without wavering? When, when is this appropriate? When is this timely? When things are good, right? Smooth sailing, no worries. Hey, hold fast. Don't waver. Got it. No. We need this encouragement when the wheels are falling off. Some of you in this room right now, are thinking, I can't do this anymore. I can't pretend anymore. I can't hold on anymore. I'm losing my grip. I'm going to tell you, from the authority of God's word, hold fast. Don't waver. What else are you going to hold on to? There is no other hope. And we'll we'll look at this more in depth next week. Don't let go of Jesus. I I understand things can be hard, and, and let's talk some more about that, because in verse 24, the author's saying, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but vivid language. The whole, this whole passage is vivid, but, but to stir up one another to, to love and good deeds is, is a remarkable phrase, right? When, when something's stirred up, we, we, it's, a, it's a verb that's used actually frequently in the New Testament. One example is when in Matthew 21, Jesus enters Jerusalem and the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this, right? They're in, they're in flux, they're disrupted, they're in turmoil. And stirred up means that the sediment is, is swirling, right? Uh, everything's in, in flux, nothing's static. And, and, and it's like this, this glass of water, right? And it's got a bunch of sediment on the bottom, and, and the water on top is, is clear, and, and it's calm, and it's, and it's predictable, and it's orderly, and it's frankly how I like life. <laughs> Probably how you like life too. We like calm waters. We like clear water. We like the sediment on the bottom, you know, not mucking things up, not making things a mess. Um, and we like to know 
what to expect. We like to have things orderly. We like to have people behaving themselves. We don't like wrinkles. We don't like things unexpected. And we certainly don't want to be stirred up. <laughs> because what happens when things get stirred up? It just makes a mess. And things are swirling around, and they're cloudy, and everything's out of sorts, and so on. And, but, but what does it say about us, about us as disciples, if our life is always clear and undisturbed and you're not learning, you're not growing, you've got everything figured out, there's no more curiosity left. What does that say about you as a disciple or as a learner? If there's nothing that's unclear for you anymore, then you've arrived. Congratulations. You've done what no other Christian in the history of Christianity has ever done. This is the Holy Spirit. To love and good deeds. None of us has arrived yet. Like, I, I know we long for that day, but it's not here yet. God is in the business of stirring our glass, our lives, to teach us how to love those who are different from us, to teach us how to live the kinds of lives that are so soaked with goodness that the world looks at us and says, why are you doing that? Like, why do these people who follow Jesus, why do they confess their sins so freely? And, and why do they forgive so freely? Why do these people who follow Jesus treat other people, other people's bodies, and regard people's bodies with such dignity and purity? That's so different from us. Why do, they, why do these disciples, why do these learners, why do these curious Christians show so much kindness to people who are so different from them, who think differently, who say different things? Why do they keep their promises? And keeping promises hurts. Why do they give their money away so generously? Why do they why do they uproot their lives and move overseas to be missionaries? Why do, they, why do they descend and uproot relationships and friendships and start new churches? Like We want to let the Holy Spirit stir us up to such a degree that our lives have this remarkable quality of love and good deeds to the degree that the world goes, why are you doing that? You cannot keep this command in a community, in your life. Who is God using as a spoon in your life? Now, I think the first application, obviously, is, is membership, you know, joining a church. So we've had Jody join and April join today, and many, most of you have joined Tabernacle. Good for you. You've joined a church. This is a place where you have community, where you've got a bunch of spoons around you just waiting to be God's tool to stir, stir you up. And we're told, let us not forsake the assembly of believers, the, the gathering together. Right? You've come here this morning. Good for you to be stirred up. I, I, I hope my job as a, as a pastor, 
I hope my sermons, uh, I remember hearing somebody say one time, you know, a good sermon is going to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. I hope you get stirred up when you come here Sunday after Sunday. That's, that, that's our hope with the gospel. But you know as well as I do, you can come, you can join the church, you can come every Sunday and sit through worship and so on, but still keep these things at arm's length. where you can't really point to any one person who's a spoon in your life, stirring you up to love and good deeds. Do you know where you find spoons? Do you know where you really get stirred up? It's in your home groups. When you get to have real conversations with other people in their Bible study, fall. And, if, and if, you, if you don't have a spoon, you need a home group. You need a men's group. You need a women's group. Um, I... I apologize. I'm sorry for those of you who I'm about to make uncomfortable perhaps, but can I please ask a favor? If you are leading or hosting a home group or a women's Bible study, time. do you mind just standing up real quick? These are your hosts. These are your leaders. And if you don't know how to get involved in a home group or a women's group or the men's group, I'm, I'm doing a home group. I'm doing a men's group. You can talk to me. Look at one of these people and find them after the service. Thank you, guys. You can, you can sit down. And, and, and get a spoon in your life. And then ask yourself, am I a spoon? <laughs> Who am I stirring up? Look, I, I, I get it. We look forward to Jesus coming back. We want calm, clear water. We don't want the sediment stirring up, but that is only going to happen when we go to glory. And that's why we are waiting for that day to draw near. That's why we long for Christ to appear. That's why we want him to finish that progressive work in our lives, to finish the stirring. Where I'm being stirred and I'm stirring others up to love and good deeds because when he returns... We will be perfected. We will be completely holy, just like he is. That's why Peter tells us, since everything will be destroyed or judged in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you wait eagerly for the day of God to come. Let me pray for us. Lord, as this day draws near, and as you draw near to us, please um, find us drawing near to you uh, with boldness, with, with confidence, knowing uh, that we're not coming in as outsiders, as those who don't belong, but we, we come as those who have the reputation of Jesus, as those who are regarded as holy and those who are growing in actual holiness. Thank you for receiving us. Thank you for Jesus who takes our sins away, who gives us his record, and who calls us to, uh, to be your agents of, of growth. Use us to stir others. And Lord, would, would we collectively and as individuals live the kinds of lives where the world says they're different and they must belong to Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.